Thanks so much uh, for you doing. Um, great to have you here. Let me welcome you as well. My name is uh, Johnny Fitzman, pastor here. If you've not met you before, um, really lovely to have you here uh, with us. We are carrying on our series in Genesis. Um, let me pray and we'll dive on in. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that you speak to us. We can, we have, as we gather as your people, then your very words come to us through the teaching of your scriptures. We pray this morning that our hearts would be ready to hear, that you would help us to be humble before you and ready to make the changes that you call us to make, either in our thinking, in our attitudes, or in our actions. For the glory of your name. Um, I guess there is uh, an instinct in all of us, isn't there? That the, the things that are most valuable, most worthwhile, most worth having in life are things that you've got to strive for, strive hard to get hold of. Um, science fiction uh, writer Robert Heyman, who's big in the kind of 20th century, mid 20th century, uh, he, he kind of put it in, in a really good way. He put it like this the, the quote will be on the screen. Nothing of value is free. Even the breath of life is purchased at birth only through gasping effort and pain. The best things in life are beyond money. Their price is agony and sweat and devotion. And the price demanded for the most precious of all things in life is life itself, ultimate cost for perfect value. And you know what? It's kind of true, isn't it? Something definitely true about what he's saying. Want to become amazing at the piano? You have to practice and practice and, and practice. If you want to be a, a great elite sportsman, then you have to get up early, you have to train hard, you have to eat well, and all those kind of things. If you want to become top in your field, top in your area of work, and you'll have to put in the hours. Well, we tend to think, don't we, that the most valuable, most worthwhile things are those that you have to strive hard for, work hard for. Now, these next few weeks, um, we're going to be thinking about one of the most dysfunctional families in the Bible. And at the centre of that dysfunction, it is the character Jacob. And Jacob's philosophy of life is exactly the same as Robert Heyman's. Nothing of value is free. But Jacob takes that to his extremes. He strives and strives to get what he wants. He manipulates, he tricks, he coerces, he fights with all of those around him until it almost destroys him and it almost destroys his family. His name means he grants, he strives. And he keeps doing it until he learns something. The most valuable, the most precious thing in life is not something that you can strive for, but it's something that you were given. The story of Jacob, that's what we're going to discover, it is when he realises that the most precious thing in life that he has been grasping after can only be his when he receives it as a gift, a gift from God, a gift of life. That's why I've called this series Grace. Because salvation, we are just going to discover, is very much a gift of God. 
We'll see a bit of that today and we'll see it as we go through these coming weeks. But first of all this morning, salvation is God's sovereign choice. Our salvation is God's sovereign choice. So in chapter 25, the story moves on from Isaac, who we were looking at last week, to his children. Have a look at verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Padam Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. See, as the writer, it's interesting here, the writer talks about Rebekah, who we looked at last week, marrying Isaac. He reminds us that she has travelled a long way from home to be Isaac's wife. Keep getting a, a mention of where she's come from, at Aramean, Padam Aram. It, it's a reminder of what we saw last week, her willingness to go. Her willingness to believe the promises that God has made to restore his world and put everything right through Abraham and his offspring. And, and if you remember last week, she went with a blessing. Her family said to her, she stepped out the door and they said, I want to be part of God's story. They said, our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. That's a lot of children, isn't it? But what's the only thing I meant? Just her. But, but through her and the children she has, may they have many, many more. And so Rebecca, full of excitement and anticipation, that, that blessing ringing in her ears, she steps out and she joins in with God's story to restore the world through Abraham. But then her hopes and her dreams come crashing down around her. Verse 21 Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. Now, it could sound like, oh, well, they've just not got around having children yet, but that word means not that they haven't had children, but they can't have children. Incredibly painful. And this, if you know the story of Genesis, this has all happened before. It's an exact repeat of what happened to Abraham and his wife, Sarah. The Lord said to them, you will become a great nation, and through your offspring, all of the world will be blessed. Sarah couldn't have children. Twice the Lord has chosen a couple and said to them, you will be parents of a great nation. And twice the Lord has chosen a couple who are unable to have children. You think, so God made a, a terrible mistake. He's chosen the wrong people. No, that's not what's going on. It, it's partly that the Bible is realistic about life in, in a broken world that the world isn't right, and no one is immune from the pain of that. Even the founders and heroes of the faith experience it. But also, the Lord deliberately chooses two couples who cannot have children because he wants us to understand something. His promises to change the world and put all things right through Abraham's offspring, those promises are wholly dependent upon him. See, just like in Genesis 1, God brought the whole of creation out of nothing. It was wholly dependent upon him. Or so he will bring about the children of the promise out of nothing and with no help. Just like creation was all of God, a sovereign act of God, so salvation is all of God, a sovereign act of God. Now, we're going to see that a bit more detail in a moment. Before we do, I do want to just rest here on something. I want to just have a look at Isaac and Rebecca's reaction to their pain of childlessness. 
See, verse 21, Isaac prays to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was childless. There's, there's something beautiful about this, something instructive about how to respond to life in a fallen world. Isaac prays for his wife. That's his initial reaction. Th things are going to go downhill for Isaac and Rebecca later on in the story. But here we see something of what the Bible means last week when it said that Isaac loved his wife Rebecca. He saw her anguish and he prayed for her. Husbands, if you go away with nothing else from this morning, if you go away with this, express your love for your wives by praying for them. And it's not just a model for husbands and wives. This is a model for all of us. You see, what does Isaac do with his sadness and his grief and his confusion? He takes it to the Lord in prayer. A little later, Rebecca does the same. God opens her womb and she gets pregnant, but she senses something is wrong. She talks about verse 22, the baby jostling inside of her, and she says, why is this happening to me, or why am I alive? Literally, the babies are crushing each other in her womb. These aren't happy moments with a little guy moving around with the tummy and the wobbles and all that. It's not that. It's leaving Rebecca desperate for her own life. And what does she do with her fear and her confusion and worry about the pregnancy? Verse 22, she went to inquire of the Lord. In a broken world, let's not pretend as Christians that we will never be confused or feel confused or, or never be outraged or never feel anger, none of us will escape the heartache of living in this world. We'll all be hit by the anguish and disappointment of, of, of a sin-broken world. So don't suppress those feelings. Don't pretend you don't have them. Take them to the Lord in prayer. Seek the Lord with them. And that's not just a one-off thing. Isaac was 40 years old when you married Rebecca, verse 26. When did the children come? 20 years later. Isaac was praying to the Lord, seeking the Lord for 20 years. Now, doing that does not guarantee we get what we want. Of course it doesn't, but it does mean this. It stops the bitterness growing inside. It enables the Lord to comfort us as we reach out to him. And it brings assurance and it brings hope in that sadness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. That was a little kind of sideline. The, the existence of Jacob and Esau, this is what we need to see, is an act of God's sovereign choice. He brings them into being. But more than that, the actual salvation of Jacob is God's sovereign choice as well. So remember, Rebecca feels the children moving inside her. She inquires of the Lord, what's going on? And listen to the explanation that she gets. Verse 23. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. It's deeply significant. The older will serve the younger. See, normally in that culture, the eldest child is the one who inherited the major share of the family's wealth and land. And in the case of Esau and Jacob, that inheritance would have included all of the promises that God has made to Abraham, their grandfather. That the promise of life and blessing and salvation 
But what does God say? The older will serve the younger. That is, the younger one is the one who's going to inherit the promises. The younger one will in time receive the blessing of God's promises and the blessing of salvation. Now immediately we start thinking, well, why does God choose the younger? Why does God even make the choice? Why choose Jacob and not Esau? Is it because Jacob is more worthy than Esau? It's not that. And God makes a choice while they're still in the womb. They've done nothing, either good nor bad. Is it because God looks to the future and sees the kind of people that Jacob and Esau will turn out to be and thinks, well, Jacob is going to turn out to be a better person, so I'm going to choose him? Well, that doesn't work either. Because as we're going to see, they're both as bad as each other. Even from the moment of conception, they're fighting. They're even fighting if they come out of the womb. Verse 24, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. You ever watch kind of um, world, world wrestling, entertainment wrestling? I, I had a friend at uni who made me watch it. That's my excuse. And it's all fun. It's all staged. There's always a point when, when one of the fighters will, will try and escape the ring and the other guy goes out there, grabs him and pulls him back in. So what's going on here with Jacob? And Esau makes a run for it, out of the womb, and he comes back with his hand and tries to drag him back. The fight's not over. So, so why does the Lord choose Jacob and Esau? It's not because one is better than the other. They're both as bad as each other. And he chooses Jacob because... Salvation is God's sovereign choice, his free choice. The Lord does not save people because some are more worthy than others. He doesn't save people because some are more intellectual than others or because some are more kind of earnest in their heart and seeking that more so than others. And the Lord gives salvation to whoever he chooses. Salvation is God's sovereign, God's free choice. And that is true for each of us who believe in Jesus Christ. Why do we believe? Why do we trust Jesus for the salvation of our sins, from our sins? Because God first chose us. Do we struggle with this? I know we do. Of course we do. In the book of Romans, Paul picks up these very verses we're looking at about Jacob and Esau. And he says that God's choosing Jacob over Esau, that is the pattern for how God brings salvation to every individual. It's always a sovereign choice. And then for three chapters in the book of Romans, chapters 9, 10 and 11, Paul grapples with this idea that our salvation is first and foremost God's choice. He acknowledges the questions that it raises. He recognises how difficult it is to hear. But in the end, those questions fade away for Paul. And he is left simply in awe. Awe of God's mercy. Because who does God choose? It's not those who are worthy. It's not those who are most religious. It's not those who have the best moral record. It is the sinful, the corrupt, the schemers and deceivers, the shameful and the ashamed. It is those who lie and cheat, those who are ensnared by pornography. People like Jacob, people like you, people like me. Paul is in awe of God's mercy as he reflects on it. He should choose us. You know, one of the reasons 
I'm so pleased that, that Sunday by Sunday we spend some time confessing our sin as a whole church together. I, I'm not pleased because I, I love being kind of morbidly introspective, you know, thinking about the worst of who I am. I, I'm pleased because as we do that, we're reminded of God's kindness to us. I remember my sin and think, you saved me, you, you loved me, you set your love upon someone like me. Such mercy, such kindness. See, Paul is in awe of God's mercy, but also he's in awe of God's majesty. He thinks about the Lord's sovereign choice over our salvation. In Romans 9, 10, 11, he, he finishes his thoughts on all of this with these words from Romans 11. They'll be on the screen. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Do you see what Paul is saying? Who am I to argue with God? He is so much greater, so much bigger than I realise. He made the world and everything in it. It is entirely up to him who he saves. And that leaves Paul in all of God's majesty. He is so much greater than he thinks. So our salvation is God's sovereign choice. We don't strive for salvation. We don't work and work until God rewards us with life. It is his gift, his choice. A gift and a choice that means we stop striving and we kneel down instead. We kneel in worship before the Lord in awe of his mercy and in awe of his majesty. The younger, the, the older will serve the younger. God chose Jacob. It's his sovereign choice. But here's the thing. Once we've received that gift of salvation, we mustn't let go of it. We must not let go of it. So secondly, salvation is something we must not give up. Now verses 27 to 34, we, we see Jacob and, and Esau as they grow up. And, and the description of Esau is interesting, isn't it? It's not the most kind of flattering description. I've got nothing against if you've got a lot of hair, by the way. We're going to talk about hair in a moment. If you've got a lot of hair, that's a wonderful thing. I'm losing my hair, so I'm very kind of jealous of people with hair. I noticed that. I know, sorry, sidetrack. Anyway, but there's something very animal-like about Esau. I'm not saying if you've got a lot of hair, you're animal-like. But, but here, there is something kind of animal-like about Esau. You first see it in verse 25, that the first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment so they named him Esau. So Esau's super hairy. He's like a carpet when he comes out of the womb. Or, or better, he's like an animal covered in fur. And as they grow older, where is Esau most at home? Verse 27, the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Esau is happier in the outdoors, happier in the wild where the animals are, but where Jacob prefers life at home, life in, in the tent. See, there's a deliberate thing going on here. Esau is being portrayed as animal-like. Now, why is that? Because 
Because the author wants us to see that Esau loses the most precious thing in the world, the promises of God, the inheritance of life and salvation. He loses that because like an animal, he cannot control his desires, his impulses. Instead, they control him. Have a look at verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I am famished. So Esau was being out hunting. He was kind of worked up a chronic hunger. And he walks in and he sees the stew and he's desperate for some. Literally says, quick, give me some of that stuff, some of that red stuff. You know, red, red and it makes you think of a kind of hearty, meaty stew, doesn't it? And Jacob then sees his opportunity. Remember Jacob the schemer, Jacob the grasper. How do I get what I want? I have to strive for it. What does he do in verse 31? Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. You could do that back then. The eldest son could pass on their birthright, their inheritance, to another member of the family. Jacob said, you can have some of my stew if you promise to give me your inheritance. And look at Esau's response. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is that birthright to me? All Esau can think about is food. He's not about to die. He can walk and he can talk. But there's something animal-like about him, about the way he cannot control his desires and his impulses. You know, you have young kids, sometimes they can be a little bit like that, can't they? They can kind of come home and they're starving, as if you've never fed them. But kids grow up, cats on the other hand, cats are just like this. We have cats growing up. You know what it's like, you've had cats, what it's like in the morning. You, you kind of go downstairs and you open the door and boom, there they are. Rubbing their head against your leg, meowing, pretending that they like you. It's not that. They want food. And if you dare walk away from the kitchen, they'll be chasing after you, claws out. And you eventually fill the bowl with put it in front of them, they can't eat it quickly enough. This is as if they'd never eaten, and yet three or four hours earlier they'd probably have another meal. But hunger grips them. They're controlled by their impulse to eat. The most important thing to them at that moment is eating. What do you think about And that's Esau. He is controlled by his desires. And that means he gives up his birthright, his inheritance. The promise of God, salvation, life forever. He gives it all up because in that moment, nothing is important to him more than his stomach, than his food, than his impulse to eat. He's controlled by his desires. Don't you know something of this, don't you? Controlled by a desire to be affirmed, or say anything, or deny anything about our faith. So that others would like us. Controlled by sexual desire or a desire for money or for revenge. You know what it's like to be in the grip of those kind of impulses, those desires. You stop thinking clearly. You do stupid stuff. And that is what happened to Esau. Now I don't think we do exactly what Esau did. I don't think in a, in, a, in a single instance 
certainly not with food anyway, you think, gosh, I've got to eat some food, so I, you know, Sunday morning, I'm just going to go to McDonald's and I'm going to give up on this Christian faith thing because I need that McDonald's. So we're not going to, that's not probably going to happen, is it? But more likely, in lots of small ways, lots of small decisions, we keep choosing immediate gratification instead of obedience to Christ. And with each small choice, it becomes harder and harder and harder to keep hold of Christ. But not only is Esau controlled by his desires, even more sad, he is deceived by them. See, Esau gives Jacob what he wants. You can have my birthright. You can have my inheritance. Verse 33, Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. It's a real miserable picture, isn't it? Esau sitting there in silence, wolfing down his food, then getting up and leaving, not saying anything. He's just given up the most precious thing in all the universe, the most valuable thing, God's salvation. He doesn't care. He considers it of no value. He thinks a meal of meaty stew is more valuable than eternal life with God. And if that in itself was not tragic enough, there's a little detail in here that makes everything even worse. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentils. Esau didn't even get what he wanted. He wanted the meaty stew. And what did he get? A pot of lentils and some bread. It's a meat-eater's worst nightmare, isn't it? We're going to have roast for lunch. You sit down and it's a nut roast. His desires deceived him. They promised him gratification, satisfaction and fulfilment. And they gave him lentil stew. That's our experience as well, isn't it? We're like addicts. We crave our next fix, but when we get it, it's not enough. It doesn't satisfy. It's lentils instead of meaty stew. In the New Testament, the writer for the Hebrews picks up on this, what happens here with Esau and Jacob. And he says, Esau is a warning. Do not be like him. Do, do not let your desires control you or deceive you. We'll see it on the screen. Chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one falls short to the grace of God, who gives up their, their salvation, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. But be careful with your desires. Don't let them control you. Don't let them deceive you. Don't give up your salvation to gratify your cravings. That is what Esau is a warning about. So what craving are you most likely to be controlled and deceived by? Is it sexual lust? Is it, is it revenge? Is it wealth? Is it beauty? Is it affirmation? And if we give in to these cravings, we act upon them, we're always going to be left deceived and disappointed and ashamed. Thought we were getting meaty stew, we ended up with lentils. So, just let me give one example and, and bring things to an end. I, I think perhaps you know, popularity or acceptance 
is a real big danger for us as Christians, particularly in our current culture. We crave, don't we? We, we crave the acceptance of the world. We want it so badly, we want so badly to be well thought of, and, and to gratify that craving, we would change our theology. We would drop the unpopular stuff that we hold to in our faith. And, and what happens? Well, maybe for a bit the, the world is pleased with us. Maybe for a bit that craving is satisfied. But then opinions change. The world demands that we change more. It's not enough. We've been deceived. And if we keep going down that route, we will give up Christ for that momentary pleasure of affirmation. Don't let your desires control you. Don't let your desires deceive you. And there is an antidote. There is a way that we can stop our sinful desires and impulses controlling and deceiving us. It is to be consumed by the purest desire of all. The desire for Christ. See, just before the, the writer of the Hebrews says, don't be like Esau, he, he writes this, and again it will be on the screen. He, he says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that, that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The Lord has given us salvation. Don't let go of it. Don't let your desires control you or, or deceive you. Instead, replace those desires with the purest desire of all. The desire for Christ. To live with Him, under Him, for Him. Fix your eyes on Jesus. See, our salvation is God's sovereign, free choice. Now salvation is something we must not give up. No, quite. No, we pray and sing. See that no one sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance as the oldest son. Heavenly Father, we, we, we know something of what Esau went through, perhaps in different circumstances, but we know what it's like to be in the grip of those kind of desires. When in that moment, nothing seems more important than gratifying those desires. Father, we pray that in your kindness you would help us always to see beyond that moment, to see the beauty and goodness of Christ, to see the joy that comes from following him, to see the future, the salvation that you have won for us and given for us in Christ. Lord, please, may we never be entrapped in that way to the extent that we let go of the salvation you have given us. Please hold on to us that we might hold on to you. In Jesus' name, Amen.